This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. Welcome to the Sally Ride Leadership Series, where we are exploring science, technology, engineering, and the arts and math, as we call STEAM. And tonight, the panel will explore how virtual reality can be used as an educational tool to boost visual and technological illiteracy, as well as improve students' attention and engagement. So tonight, I am pleased that we have the opportunity to explore the medium of virtuality with our host, Scott Lewis, who oversees this voice of San Diego's operations, website, and daily functions as editor-in-chief. And he also writes about local politics where he swims with the sharks and he doesn't get eaten. Tonight, we're pleased to introduce Scott as our moderator and take it from here. So thank you, Scott. Thanks, Ed. I had the challenge of actually bringing people up to speed um, and also talking to folks who know a lot about this. So um, Rodney, I'm going to turn to you first. Um, so explain where we're at. Uh, what is uh, AR, VR, other Rs? Um, don't touch on real R because we don't know what that is. I think, I think uh, you were talking about mixed reality. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but then there's just, I don't even know what reality is anymore. So, um, but uh, yeah, explain what those are. And you, you mentioned you had kind of a bleak view. So uh, get into that a little bit too. Well, we have, uh, at Interology, we have a lot of different kinds of companies that come to us to ask us to build things. And whenever there's you know, too many zeros on them, they, they back away. So unfortunately, a lot of these solutions right now are really expensive to build. It's mainly because of where we are with the hardware and the software tools to build on that. But when looking at, when trying to explain the differences between AR, VR, and MR, uh, VR obviously is full occlusion. You know, you can't see anything except what the technology is giving to you. AR is, is a mixture of that where you, you can see the real world and, you know, not get nauseous while you're using it and actually have, you know, a, uh, like, like this could be presented, this water bottle could be presented right in front of you and be a, uh, an augmented experience. But mixed reality is if I wanted to, to roll this augmented uh, thing off the table, it actually could respond to the phys- with physics of that. And so we, you're seeing a whole spectrum of right, Say of that again. Say that again. Now what? Yeah, so mixed reality, actually, your augmented objects uh, have, a, have awareness of the physical uh, of like a physical table. So you could literally roll this off the, t- you know, virtually roll it off the table. Got it. I think. And so the, you know, and the, the bleakness is because it's, you know, we're, we're trying to build solutions for a lot of different kinds of companies. And uh, we're such, we're, to say we're even at the, at the infancy of this seems to be, you know, it seems like we're even before that. There's so many more, t- uh, you know, the hardware is evolving so quickly. Um, I'm, we're hoping, we're already playing with the AR Toolkit and AR Core as well. We're hoping those progress along a, little bit, a bit further. But we're still, when, you, when you're thinking about building these solutions to transform how children think, we have a long ways to go hardware and software-wise for, for platform tooling in order to deliver experiences like that. Okay. So the bleakness is just that it's hard. It's, it's really hard right now, Okay, yes. but it's not that it's going to ruin life. No, no, no. Okay, got it. All right, Julie, I wanted to turn to you. Uh, so uh, talk about education for a second. Uh, what, what are we, where are we at as far as the penetration of this technology in schools and classrooms and educational products? And uh, where, where could we be? And where might we be in the future going forward? Good question. Okay. Well, you you seem pretty confident we can do this. So um, the state of VR at this point in our K-12 schools is still really small for a lot of the reasons that, that Rodney talked about. The uh, It's about 5% of teachers told us in our research from last fall that they had implemented some type of a VR platform in their classroom. So that's tiny tiny in terms of the opportunity. But there's lots of creativity about uh, what it could be, and there's lots of curiosity about what it could be. Uh, The challenge is that there are some really big challenges associated with bringing VR in particular into the classroom. Uh, A couple of them include the fact that for most implementations that we've seen, even the very beginning ones that we've seen, it does require a device per child, per student. So you need to have sort of that one-to-one environment. Now, in a lot of our schools, uh, or all around the country, they've implemented technology where every student has access to a Chromebook or to a laptop or to a tablet. But that's really only about 40% of classrooms across the country. 
So when we think about this one-to-one need, that's a heavy lift for schools to start thinking about how they get there. Um, The other thing that is still missing from the equation is real content or curriculum. So there's some interesting things out there. Lots of teachers are using Google Expeditions and taking their students to see different things around the world. But as far as something that really is embedded into curriculum or meets certain standards, or a teacher could say, okay, I have a unit on science. Here's what I'm doing. And then where is the VR application that goes along with that? We still have some ways to go. Uh, There's some other challenges also. There's always funding challenges. There's how do you evaluate the outcome? Do we have the internet bandwidth in our schools to implement this? So these challenges are there. A lot of them have to do with just basic technology implementations as well. Uh, But one of the other things that is important when we think about education is educating people about what the potential is. Uh, So how do we train teachers to not just think about what they know today but where it could be? How do we bring parents along? When we polled parents about the idea of VR being part of the ultimate school for their children, so would they see VR as being an ultimate uh, tool for their child to use, those numbers were really small also. Only 17% of parents said that that was a high priority for them. So we have a lot of of ways to go in terms of educating people and then addressing some of these challenges. How do you know as an educator, what, how do you know when VR or AR could help you? What triggers that in your mind that, oh, this is a place where virtual reality would help me get this across, this concept across? So we've done a lot of research on the adoption patterns uh, from teachers on all sorts of different technologies. And we've seen two common trends. Uh, So two things happen. One, uh, the teacher has used the technology in their personal life. So we saw that initially with tablets, with smartphones, with social media. We're seeing that right now. As teachers are familiar with using these uh, different types of digital tools in their own personal life, they start to make the translation. And they say, oh, well, that's interesting. If I can do X, Y, and Z in my personal life using this tool, maybe it could have an application in my classroom. That's the first way. The second thing that happens is if there are a lot of models, exemplars that are out there that teachers can then use as uh, samples to build different things off of. Uh, We don't have that yet. Uh, We need to build those, and we need to build some good models that are sustainable and replicable for teachers to be able to do not only that personal translation around the value proposition, but also to be able to say, okay, so this worked in a second-grade class with students that look like my students, so maybe I could try it in my class. Or it worked in a ninth-grade science classroom in some other location, maybe that could work in my classroom. So those are the two things that we need to get to. Got it. Uh, Jurgen, tell me about, uh, so UC San Diego is one of the few places you can go and, you know, experience this and understand where's, what things are, what things, what, what's happening. And um, tell me about your lab and um, what you're doing there and what you learn about the, the educational space. Right. So, um, so I've been working in virtual reality and doing research in that area for about um, 18 years. And uh, at the beginning of that, it was very expensive to even have a virtual reality system. And what I used to work with then at the time was um, were computer systems where the computer alone was a million dollars. And then the, the virtual reality system that you were using for the display was, we call those, call those caves, virtual reality caves. They were another half million dollars or so. Um, and um, so it was a very expensive proposition. And only, only research universities and, and uh, bigger companies could afford them. So in the meantime, of course, virtual reality has gone mainstream, and um, it's been really exciting to see that. And uh, I, was, I started teaching virtual reality classes 10 years ago at UCSD, and at the time, no one really knew what virtual reality was, or could any of my students really use virtual reality equipment besides maybe the one or two virtual reality systems we had at UCSD at the time. So I had a very small class was was about 20 students and I teamed them up in teams of, you know, two or three students and then they time um kind of shared that uh, that virtual reality system or two that they were able to use. So it was very tedious to teach that. And but 3 years ago I tried to get because at the time there was, you know, everybody had was talking about 3D TVs and you went into Best Buy and they wanted to sell you a 3D TV, right? 
Now you go to Best Buy and you ask for a 3D TV and I can't even sell you one anymore. Um, but um, So I had the idea, why not get at least 3D monitors for the computer lab we have at UCSD like any, any other school. Huge computer labs with you know, 40 PCs in, in one room and we had like, like six or seven of those. Um, so why not put 3D monitors in one of these labs? But at the time, um, it was kind of a, towards the end of that uh, that 3D cycle um, where it then became really hard to get those monitors. And by the time the money that I needed for that um, became available, those monitors had gone off market. So I was like, oh, now I have money, but I can't buy anything. So then luckily, that was just around the time when the Oculus Rift had its Kickstarter thing. And I was thinking, hmm, you know, maybe that's a solution. Get, get a bunch of Oculus Rift headsets. Of course, those were a lot more expensive when they finally came out. Than uh, than monitors, and um, and so I ended up, but I, I ended up getting enough money together to build a whole virtual reality lab with twenty five high end gaming PCs with full on Oculus Rifts with the touch controllers, so you get a full VR experience, um, and I, I call that a full VR experience compared to when you just put your phone in in a in a in a cardboard thing and you put it on your head that's that's sort of like vr light it's it's not bad it gets you an idea but it really isn't the same thing as as an oculus rift or an htc vive which are much more expensive but they um they make it they make the experience a lot more immersive so i was very lucky to get this lab together and as far as i can tell it's still the the biggest virtual reality lab teaching lab in the country um we've uh, had about uh, it started operating last fall so pretty much exactly a year ago. And we've had about 200 students take classes or, or other courses so that they got decent amounts of exposure of, um, in those uh, virtual reality uh, envir environments. And they played around with them. And some of them took classes where they actually programmed uh, applications for virtual reality. So, so we're not only teaching our students how to use that equipment, what you can do with it, but we're also teaching them how to create content, how to, how to design virtual reality experiences. I like the word experience for that because it really is more than just an app an, an app or an application. Um, so, uh, so yes, so we have, we're training students to make virtual reality applications. And I also want to mention with all the R's that we were talking about, um, virtual reality and augmented reality and mixed reality, they're programming those um, is very much the same thing, except that there's the, you know, either you can see through the display or not. But when we teach students how to use virtual reality systems, it's a small step for them to do augmented reality. So that's really, really very related. And it's not like we need to start a whole new program to teach augmented reality. But what was the big shift? Was, was, was the Oculus the shift that made this from you know, elite experience, very rare experience to something that we can all start talking about and that we're all excited about scaling out? So I think it was probably the VR light aspect and it was things like, um, uh, you know, the, uh, what was it, the, the Time magazine um, or, or some one of those was uh, distributing VR viewers to all of their subscribers, like a million or so. Um, so so the, the number of people who got exposed to VR increased from from pretty much almost zero to millions of people you know within i want to say the course of a year and um and and that's maybe just even just short exposures or you know somebody your, your, your friend got a viewer and you just you tried something out for a couple of minutes um and i think that that started the that started the whole movement and it started bringing virtual reality to people's attention and the the whole oculus rift and the media attention that it got and uh palmer lucky on on on, a, on, a, on another time magazine i think yeah. was um uh, on the cover like you know in a weird pose I, I still remember that picture as being just really strange and i, I don't still don't know why they did that <laughs> it wasn't really very flattering for the whole community of virtual reality but anyway so so that's still it was um a big shift towards bringing this topic to everybody's attention how many of you have all used or experienced vr raise your hand all right and uh, so a few who haven't, but um, all right, so let's transition now. Kyle, you are on the uh, front edge of um, trying to develop businesses and solutions for this. Talk about what your company does. Right. So our company, we try to build smart, intelligent uh, interfaces for people to interact in virtual reality, particularly in science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. And so about a year ago, we started a project called CalcFlow. And one of the interesting things was I was one of the original TAs for the Summer Academy Vector Calculus course. And 
we started developing the modules fit for the particular course. You could see vectors in three space. You can uh, understand what Gauss's theorem is, understand what a parametrized surface is. Core ideas in vector calculus um, that's taught at UCSD for engineers. And being at the front of all of these cutting edge uh, technology, one of the things you start to realize is every single moment when you get a student that comes to you that says, oh, that makes total sense. That's what you we want to strive for, especially in education, especially in virtual reality, because vector calculus, uh, for in a math uh, math perspective, serves as the great connection between, you know, the analytical side of mathematics and the uh, computational side of mathematics. Because most of the time, a lot of math courses is, is ends up being like this. Here's a formula. Okay, you can do a couple of computations. Oh, there's a proof. I don't know how to do a proof. Okay, then I'm just gonna mess up on the exam. But what, so during our first iteration, we learned a lot of different things about how students engage the material. We learned about how they're willing to try new technology. Um, they're willing to um, experiment and communicate their ideas to other students. So that was one of the cool things when you had a student teaching another student uh, about, oh, this function has a particular characteristic. Do you want to see it? Oh, let me put on the headset. That's the, those are the rare teaching moments that is becoming much more prevalent as we start to engage people into virtual reality. And then this past summer, we actually just finished the second vector calculus course. And what we did was we made it mandatory for students to use it. It was actually part of their final grade. One of the midterm questions actually involved the virtual reality aspect. So as far as I think I understand, I think we're the first um, university level uh, math course to implement virtual reality as part of the official grading scale. And so one of the cool things we saw was how students responded to these questions, how students communicated these ideas, and we kept adjusting our modules and uh, created our labs to ha have students communicate those specific ideas that you see in vector calculus. What? I want to ask a similar question I asked uh, Julie, which was what kinds of concepts are better educated with this sort of technology and what aren't, you know, what is it good to try to teach with VR and what is it, what doesn't work? In mathematics, uh, generally we divide mathematics two, maybe three, depending on who you talk to, to abstract algebra, um, applied mathematics and statistics. And one of the cool things that you get to see is in applied math, there's vector calculus. So pretty much, how do I define and calculate area uh, under a certain 2D plane? And then we can expand it to 3D. How can I calculate volume? Oh, that's what this 3D curve is doing. And I'm, all I'm doing is I'm calculating a bunch of um, rectangular prisms to um, derive certain formulas that you see in geometry. Now, where it's unhelpful, I think this is where we have to have that conversation of reinventing the wheel. We don't want to reinvent the wheel. Because every time people try to reinvent the wheel, it never comes out round. So that's, the, that's one of the big points where, for example, can we do VR and English? That's a, maybe a, a weird derivative of a virtual reality application, right? And so it has to be helpful. It has to aid in the coursework. For example, if I were to picture a bunch of text in virtual reality, does it do anything? No. Does it connect the geometric and the analytical understanding that students have in mathematics? That's one of our big criteria when we develop our applications. Um, is it helpful? If it's not helpful, throw it away. Because again, we don't want to just do things for the sake of novelty. We want to do things for the sake of, is it being helpful to the students? Let me just push real quick on that. The, what is? Give me an example of a geometric versus analytical. Okay, so pretty. So essentially, um, one thing is the analy analytical understanding of here are three sets of functions, and each function takes in two parameters u and v, and it's just a bunch of geometric functions you've seen, maybe sine, cosine, right. and put a bunch of letters. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just do a computation. That's um, the computational aspect that most students will receive in, uh, in education, right? Now, connecting that with what does that look like in three space if I were to graph this function? And why is it that I can't 
put a plane like my hand onto like this table. Like if I put my hand on this table, I can't really put my hand because it's unstable at this at the edge. But I can put my hand on here; it's flat. So the so the analytical understanding is on is um, why is it that I have certain unstable regions versus oh I'm just going to compute this oh it just doesn't exist I don't know what it means geometrically, but that's what I'm trying to get at. Good, Rodney. We see a couple of different kinds of classes of problems that people are asking to be solved, and one of them is. Um, has been in healthcare. And when you think of whenever you're dealing with uh, educational things that are um, re require physical objects, let's say cadavers, for example, they're expensive. Um, and you might imagine that that is something that could be simulated through virtual reality or AR. Uh, that's something there are companies that have been approaching us to uh, help them build out these simulation systems. Or you might imagine that you're, you're going to be performing a surgery uh, ahead of time and you have some information about the 3D scan of that person and then you can see things in 3D space but ahead of time before you open up someone. Um, the other the other side is uh, other kind of problem that we've been uh, asked to solve is a collaboration problem um, where we um, and this is something uh, we, like whoever, whoever had to suffer through taking OCHEM they remember the uh, um, the little plastic, uh, uh, you know, atoms, and, you know, and, and things to build the molecular structures out. I don't know. I never had to take OCHEM, but my but my roommate did. But uh, but that's something that is what's really interesting about that problem is that it's a it's a 3D problem done with plastic. And just because you can see these molecules, you can pick them up, turn them, and hold them, and and it's that's way better than looking at it on you know in a textbook. And uh, we we had a, a company ask us to build. They wanted to build molecules together with people who were remote and do this in augmented reality. That's a really hard problem. Um, and, uh, but having two people, regardless of where they are on the planet, be able to collaborate about that experience. And AR is a great translation of that physical model because you can walk up into, you know, into the molecule, look at it from different angles, and kind of have that same similar kind of experience. It strikes me what we're talking about is not just understanding formulas and numbers, but being able to... To when that that moment when you learn something where you feel it, where you you feel like you could go and tell other people about it because you have lived it, you have experienced it. Am I getting close? Have you ever seen an HIV virus in three D? <laughs> no. One of the cool things we just developed is um, um, an application that you can visualize all these different proteins, and it's helping a a top pharma company right now to visualize all of these different proteins, all of these different solubility structures. And um, we, are, we also have the ability now to uh, network across the country. So you have two people in different uh, geographic locations. They put on a headset, they go into a conference room, and then they're interacting with the same molecule, the same protein, and looking at different like Van der Waal models and whatnot to actually see, oh, do you see what I'm seeing? Yes, I, I really do. Oh, this is why... Uh, this particular protein's acting this way. And so it's really crazy to see aspects of chemistry, mathematics, geometry, um, into virtual reality. And I, it's endless at this point. Uh, Julie, and then um, Jurgen. I think one of the other things that we're thinking about regarding both AR and VR is not just the content, the acquisition of the content, but also how that experience changes either your efficacy as a learner or the way you're thinking about yourself. And I think that's a, a really interesting aspect, and it starts opening up conversations about the types of applications or content that could be built. So I'll give you an example of that that's right here behind us. We actually did a project where we were the external evaluator for an AR project that was here at the library. It was in conjunction with the uh, high school that's right downstairs where the high school wanted their ninth graders to get introduced to the dome, the large dome that's here at the library, which you know is quite an architectural feat, as a way to get their students interested in STEM and STEAM. 
So what was built was an AR application or an AR experience where the students got to rotate the dome and to look at some overlays of architectural blueprints, some primary source documents, some videos about how the dome was built and also what the engineering was with the dome, what technology was used, what were the artistic or humanistic components of the dome. And their goal was not so much to teach the students about how the dome was built, but rather to engage the students in starting to think about STEM and STEAM as interesting career fields in ninth grade that then they could build on in 10th, 11th, and 12th grade with other types of coursework. So it was a really interesting project because it did, in fact, take these ninth graders that didn't know anything about the Dome, even though they lived here in San Diego and they were going to school here, and it got them thinking differently about what STEM and STEAM mean rather than just saying out what the words mean and actually starting to think about themselves as a potential engineer, as a potential architect, as a potential artist that could be building some type of a cultural institution. So I think it's beyond the content. The content's important, but I think it's also about thinking about the, how the learner uh, perceives the value of that experience and what it means for them. Jürgen? I want to pick up a, a thread that's developed um, uh, kind of um, in several of these uh, comments, which is the in interactivity of virtual reality applications. And there's virtual reality really has, there, there are two components to it on a, on a high level. One is that you see things in 3D and you're immersed in the environment, um, kind of from a perception point of view. But the other one is the interaction. You can interact, you can input information into that system. And typically the input is done by, um, well, one could be your head motion because your head is being tracked by the system. So wherever you look, the system knows that and you can do something with it. You have a cursor that moves along with your, uh, your head direction. And in the future, it could be eye direction even. We currently don't have widespread um, gaze detection yet in these headsets, but it's possible and it's probably going to happen um, rather soon. Uh, but the other thing is is input with your hands and with your whole body potentially. So um, a few years ago, before VR even came out, the Kinect, the Microsoft Kinect came out and a lot of games um, became very popular at the time. You were dancing and the computer was, would judge you as to as to how good your dancing was or how bad. And uh, and that was very fun for, for a variety of games. Now with the virtual reality systems of today, the, the full-on ones, not the light ones, they have controllers. So you, you grab a 3D controller and interestingly, the, the big ones all came out with two controllers. So there's a controller for each of your hands so that you can then interact in 3D. And then this goes beyond interacting in a game traditionally with a, a, like a gamepad uh, and a keyboard and a mouse where you can certainly play 3D games and run through a maze and fly flight simulators with just mouse and keyboard and a gamepad. But in virtual reality, what really makes a difference is when it's an application that where it makes sense to use your hands in 3D. And and I uh, I think the the uh, example that Rodney just brought up with those plastic molecules and that you would you at the time you, you that was a much better way to teach how these molecules work and how they how they combine than looking at pictures in the textbook. Now with virtual reality controllers uh, for instance these, those guys do it nanome is you can actually grab these molecules and you can they stick to your hand and you can you can you can move them together and stick them together and build stuff which is not at all possible with mouse and keyboard at least not at that speed and at that uh, kind of intuitive interaction so so that's an area where i think vr is really really strong because just the visuals you can get those with you can get 90 percent of that with a good 4k display i want to say but um, the immersion is one thing, and then the, uh, the other big thing is the, the controls. And I think that's a really, really key component, and I try to teach my students that, that's, that the 3D interaction is so important because I've seen, um, especially earlier in my career when we didn't have those head-mounted displays yet, and the students would develop with regular computers, and then they would go into one of those virtual reality caves. They, their interactions were much like mouse and keyboard. And and it was because they couldn't, while developing, they couldn't use those controllers. There was one set of controllers that they could use when they were testing. Um, and it made such a difference when they actually were using 3D controllers. So this is this is kind of like an under, maybe under uh, appreciated piece of the current virtual reality systems is that, that controller thing. And that, of course, hopefully in the future we'll see full body tracking and things where you can you don't need controllers and you can walk around in a bigger space and it's all much more intuitive but those controllers are a really key component for me to make virtual reality useful right i think 
tagging onto that, um, when you has anyone ever been inside a sphere before or some sort of ball? <laughs> okay, one person. So, and how many people have have not used VR before? All right, so we're gonna have you become believers. So, um, one of the key things, just like what Jurgen was saying, is how is it that I can interact with these um, like educational concepts? Do I know what this function is doing? N now, what we can do is grab these for in our application. We can grab these graphs. You can literally stick yourself inside the graph, look at all these different aspects, see the x, y, z coordinates and understand like, okay, I see why this is a maximum. And then grabbing that yourself, rotating the graph around, and then realizing, oh, this is so much better than my TI-84. And then traditionally, traditionally in mathematics, you had what, Wolfram Alpha, and you still only had the 2D surface. You didn't have the controller. You didn't have um, that ability, again, to reach into your screen and then s rotate the graph and spin it around and combine other graphs and compare them and have developed the analytical understanding. And so that's one of those cool things that um, especially the Oculus brings in, that feeling of it being natural. Can I grab things? Can I engage with things? There's, a, there's one thing about knowing what something is. There's another thing about actually interacting with it. Where is the line, though, between that being helpful and illuminating and it just being surface fun and just just interesting yeah we use a we have a litmus test on some types of apps and i'll use the connect example because we used to build a lot of connect apps but uh, people wanted to build connect apps on things that had no business you know waving your hands at because it would have been a lot harder to do and you would have been thought it would be fun for you know a couple minutes and then you're going to go touch the screen or use a mouse and keyboard and so if there was really no other way to do it um, then that's sort of that sweet spot of, of thinking about technology is like, well, if I could just do this with a mouse and keyboard way faster than what, or, or I'm not, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of a better experience after using the VR experience for a while after the novelty wears off. It's, and then you just want to go back to being productive again. Do you have a test that identifies like, oh, this is really something that would be useful rather than just perfunctory or whatever well it's it's difficult because yeah. it's more it's more of it's just sort of a, it's a thought experiment at that point right you know because every every application is very different if you can imagine it you know elsewhere yeah. or see evidence of other apps that do it differently then why are you spending so much money building this thing right um let me ask you this so as we talk to it, we're obviously a group of people we're in we're ready uh, what is what needs to happen though to talk to the rest of the world? To uh, it took a big step with scale, obviously with some of these headsets and such. That scale though is pretty far, as you mentioned. It's hard. What's what's the next step? What kinds of uh, of things need to happen now? So one thing that comes to my mind right away is the awkwardness of VR these days, whether it's VR light or not. Um, you put a headset on. And all you see is the computer image. You don't see anything around it, and uh, especially not the people around you that you're probably with. Um, I think that kind of VR works really well for the gamer who is in their room. They don't want to see anyone. If it's a kid, they don't even want to see their mom. They're, they're, they're glad they can't see their mom when she comes in and tells them to go to bed. Um, so I think that's work, that works really well. And And now... We, that's just all we have. The virtual reality is what works well. That's what we can afford at the university. And um, it's a lot better than augmented reality and mixed reality systems today. But of course, in the future, we're all hoping that those augmented reality and mixed reality systems are going to catch up. And the, um, the key aspect there is that those allow you to see through the display. It's like having you know, ski goggles on. You still have something on your head, but you can still see through them and you can have conversations with other people and you can you can be social and we are social social beings as humans so i think that's a huge problem right now that makes 
VR is so awkward that when you have a friend over, you know, you're like, oh, I have this new Oculus Rift, and you put this put the headset on them, then you don't see what they do anymore. You know, maybe on the monitor there's a little bit of what they do, but really, really doesn't help. You want to be in that space with them. So either you have to have multiple such systems now, and then you need software that can link them up, um, or what's going to have to happen is that that the link up happens automatically, and that you can see the other people as they are through the glasses. And I think that that's really critical. So what you're saying is the isolation that makes it so beautiful now is also what's limiting its its potential reach. Right. So I believe there's certainly um, applications beyond the gamer in the dark room um, that where the isolation actually helps. An example is, for instance, training scenarios where you want to put somebody in an environment that immerses them and you don't want them to see anything around them. You don't want them to see the instructor um, that might be in the same space with them. You, you really want them to be isolated. And, and there's, there's training and I could imagine in the educational realm, there's a whole lot. There's, um, there's remote things, remote surgery, remote maintenance, where it really doesn't make any sense that you see things in your space because you are virtually somewhere else. Um, so in those cases, it makes a lot of sense to have the closed headset. Uh, but, but what I see a lot is that someone has a new VR system and they want to show it to their to their friends, to their family, whoever it is. And and the awkwardness of demoing that is just, just striking. And and that has to go away because that's very uncool. And it makes it so that you can't really spend a lot of time with that thing. You know, you're like you're showing that for a few minutes and and then the one person thinks it's cool and then you have another friend and they put it on, play with it for a few minutes, and then you have to do something else because you can't spend the night with that one headset. Well, the, those of us who grew up with uh, Nintendos and stuff, I remember watching my friends play for hours before I got to play. And so, um, you remember that feeling? Right? I, yeah. Absolutely. But the, I still, th- and I actually, I've, I've, you know, I've lived through that with, with PCs and home computers, and there would be like six of us that yeah. sitting in front of one monitor. Yeah. But it was a little different because everybody actually got to see the yeah. same thing. That's Whereas true. in virtual reality, you might see what's on that monitor, but it's disorienting, and it's not the, at all the same experience as the one that's in that, in that headset. So it's really interesting because the the K-12 space, so kindergarten through 12th grade classrooms, is really a little bit different because uh, in one way they're not interested in the isolation at all. That is counter to what the class concept is all about. But in the same regard, in K-12 right now, we have a huge push toward personalization of learning and having learning be totally differentiated for each child. And so that's where some of the very beginning companies that are selling specifically to education, K-12 education, are uh, starting to make some inroads because they're talking about the personalization of the learning experience for each child. But they're not leaving it just there. They're also taking it and pulling out of the experience a lot of data that can help teachers understand where the students are. So where they're walking through the curriculum or walking through the content, be it science or math, or any different type of subject, there is a back channel of information that comes to a teacher that they can then use to customize the rest of the learning experience for the student. So that it's sort of a weird, it is an awkward space, but it actually has a lot of potential in K-12 to hit on this theme around personalization of learning. So is this a, what we're identifying, is this, is it a hardware or a software problem, and who's attacking it? It's it's both. You know, it's it's uh, a hardware problem because you know we're all waiting for our AR headsets to look like this, right? And um, but now they're bulky, they're heavy, there are very few vendors. There's a lot of promise out there, you know. And we're all hoping within the next you know five years, or we're going to see a lot more of these. What was the problem with Google Glass? Um, that's I think it was a little early in the whole in a whole spectrum of things. Even if it was just a couple of years ago, that's still it just happened to be where people were perceiving it. Um, and, and I don't know if I, I never owned them, but because uh, they were too hard to get. But uh, uh, but I I always envisioned a, like a like a, a great Google Glass app would be like I'm a mountain biker and I would love to when I'm mountain biking to have someone in front of me that I'm chasing. You know something you know things like that would be would be a, would be a great app for that. Yeah. But the soft to the software point, it's just the software uh, tooling that's available to build these things because you don't want to be. Um, you want a lot of that, a lot of the tooling to be there to free to build great app experiences on to make it easier to build those great app experiences. Yeah, and that's still it's still a maturing environment. Well, Kyle, talk to me. What does it what does it look like if uh, let's get a little science fictiony and picture uh, what kinds of devices and and software it might look like? Did you read Ready Player One? 
No, that's that's a good, great book. Everyone should read that book. It's about a VR, but okay. that but that that's a full immersion, you know, uh, where people are basically lose themselves in a, in a virtual reality environment and full haptic suits, uh, and they don't want to leave. <laughs> that sounds like my child with <laughs> Minecraft. Yeah, there was a uh, TV show. Maybe some of you have seen it called Black Mirror, and it and it was a show that talks about pretty much the dangers of technology and there was a virtual reality episode and I was just so excited to watch it and one of the uh, the episode pretty much imagine it was an AR device and imagine that your worst fears came to life but then there came to a point where um, yeah just your worst nightmare either that's the friend from high school 30 years ago that bullied you or something like that or a giant spider in front of you, but that you can't tell the difference between reality and virtual reality. And so, as much as it plays on with the whole, um, with the whole technology, if it's abused, um, might lead like might look like this. There are a lot of positive applications to where we can see virtual reality. For example, like um, open uh, surgeries, uh, practicing. Um, operations that might be too much on someone else on a live experiment um, education um, I could see this going towards um, well we've already seen this with um, pilot testing right with pilots are going into a virtual reality simulation of, of their planes and so to say that to for me to speculate on anything futuristic I think in itself is a limitation because I think it's endless at this point. And um, another another area for the future where I can see, um, especially augmented reality, really uh, work is anything that has to do with a screen, a display today. So that includes your cell phone, it includes your TV screen, your monitor. You know, how how many screens are there that you stare at every day? It's it's probably a lot. Um, uh, and uh, in theory, augmented reality can turn everything into a screen. You can have a screen with you wherever you want. Uh, you could share screens because other people that also have these augmented reality goggles on, they can see that same virtual screen. There's not one physically, but you stare at that spot. For other people, there's nothing there. But you both can watch a movie. You know, you can do like movie night in the park, you know, every night and no one has to set a screen up for you. So I think um, a lot of the applications that we're going to see once augmented reality systems are available for larger minds of people and they work well um, are applications that move from existing screens to the augmented reality space and that includes a lot of the cell phone applications another example is is um, directions you uh, you all have used uh, like either google maps or some other navigation application when you do directions it talks to you it tells you, you know, turn right um, and it, uh, and then you look at the map and you can see, depending on how sophisticated the thing is, you look at the map and, and the turns indicated, or you can even see a 3D image of kind of how you turn. But where we're going with the augmented reality is that you drive around or you walk around and, and maybe some of you have been in cities where you walk around as a tourist and there's this red line on the floor, on the ground, um, and on the, on the sidewalk that you follow for, to go from one attraction to the next. Um, that red line could be there virtually. Only you see it. And it's, it's, it's for your path that you want to go. In the car you'd be driving, your lane would be green, right? All the other lanes would be regular. Your lane is green. So you know exactly which lane to turn into. You don't have to look at anything. You don't have to listen to anything. The, th the uh, indicators for where you have to go are built into the environment. And hopefully you don't lose your connection or Pokemon doesn't show up or something, yeah. right? I was just <laughs> going to say that. <laughs> I mean, you see a little bit, was it just last year you saw the hype with Pokemon Go, right? There was massive adoption. Uh, a couple of friends of mine, we decided to go to Balboa Park just down the street. And one of the most interesting things was, so there's this dark side of Balboa Park. And it's just completely dark. Traditionally, no one's there. Everyone was there huddled together, together in the darkness. And I was just amazed. You see all the screens that light up. And so I, people are excited for new technology to come out. That's the cool thing to see. It was shocking where the street vendor that was there he was really smart to position himself into the darkness and everyone was just going there. So you see, everyone's pretty much ready. It's just the technology waiting to catch up. And Pokemon Go is just a pretty much a subcase of how eager people are to see that. Well, one thing that's dear 
to me, of course, is, uh, as a journalist, I'm a type of educator. I uh, My goal is to help people understand the problems that happen in the community, the um, developments that people want to build, the uh, uh, environment, the sea level, the beaches, sand. There's so many issues. Um, can you help me think about, and does anyone want to take this, like, what? how could we bring this to the civic space to help people understand these debates and these discussions about what could be built or who should get elected or what policies we should implement? Has, have you guys thought about that at all? Well, you could you could imagine a VR experience that kind of, you know, you, you're standing at, you know, the ocean side and let's accelerate time or, or even an augmented reality experience would be a little bit more difficult today, but a VR experience that did transfer for like global warming, um, climate change, and what's the ramification all of a sudden I'm under five feet of water because it's, you know, 50 years in the future or whatever. Um, there, there are things like that, that, um, I think are the low hanging fruit kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if somebody's proposing a stadium right over here, um, there was rendi- renderings and there was all kinds of even videos, but nothing would have compared to, you know, being able to walk and see what that would look like or what the shadows would look like or what an alternative vision might look like. Right. I mean, it's it's there's got to be tremendous potential applications. there. Right. And the and along those lines um, in, in architecture, uh, architecture firms have been using virtual reality for a long time for exactly that. Uh, except with the difference that they do it, they did it with virtual reality, so that you had to be in their office space, uh, and then you could walk around a virtual scenario where that building that they're that they haven't been built, haven't built yet, but they've been planning, um, they can you can see that put into the real environment. But with augmented reality, you could do what you're saying. You actually go to the spot and you look up and you see that high rise already there with the right lighting, and just like it's going to look when it's there, um, but it's not physically there yet. And that can that can not only help maybe acceptance in the in the public but also can help with the for the act for the engineers that build that to make sure that it actually looks the way that they want it to look and it feels the way they want it to look because that's not a given when you just look at a video where you have a rendering of that high rise that strikes me as that that's that that's that part that where we have that problem still though right because if it's if it's if it's isolated you don't get to share that experience with somebody if it's AR, it just needs to be better, right? It just needs to be a more a, an easier experience, right? Did you want to- yeah, I was just going to say there's so much friction right now for users for have a good AR experience. The hardware is just not there yet. That's not that's less that's more of a hardware problem than a software problem. So you really wouldn't it would be it really wouldn't be a good experience if you would take a Hololens, for example, and try to do like walk around downtown and see how the stadium is there. Limited field of view. That's just with time that'll get better. You know. Only so much can be digitized in front of your face, you know, type of thing. So how far are we are from? Uh, it's really hard. You know, that's a very hard. There's <laughs> a lot of, you know, there's, you know, a lot of companies are promising everything, and they have great videos on their websites. So we're, we're you know, certainly are hoping for uh, amazing he- headsets coming out. Is San Diego how, one to ten? Ten being the most advanced cluster of this activity, and one being um, remote, you know. Antarctica like where are we in in this innovation space well I, I want to say we're, we're pretty well positioned part of it is that we're in California and we're, we're not too far from Silicon Valley obviously Silicon Valley is where it's all at in, in IT and also in in virtual reality Seattle is a big center with Amazon and Microsoft being there um, both of which are active in virtual reality and augmented reality uh, quite a bit in San Diego, we have a very active community here. Um, there's the the San Diego uh, Meetup for Virtual Reality, SDVR, um, which I am myself a member of, but uh, maybe some of you are as well, and I highly recommend for those of you who aren't yet and don't know about it, look it up on meetup.com. You enter San Diego and Virtual Reality. It's a great group. Um, and... Uh, and we have a fair amount of companies here too, and part of that is that Qualcomm's in town, and Qualcomm's the the big elephant in terms of um, computers and electronics here, obviously. And but from Qualcomm, there there's there's spinoffs there, there's some research happening there, um, and there's uh, because Qualcomm makes cell phone c- 
components. And virtual reality also requires these cell phone components. In fact, that's why we have virtual reality now is because of cell phones and because they got small enough and powerful enough to be to serve as virtual reality displays. Um, so that plays a big role. And I, I want to say, I don't know, on a scale of one to ten, I think we're definitely above a five. Um, I don't know too many other cities besides the Silicon Valley and maybe a couple others that have as vibrant a community um, as we do here, although I don't know a lot of the cities as well. And who knew Qualcomm made such good commercials? Have you seen those? Uh, good. Julie, is there, are there any uh, schools in town uh, really taking some steps that we should highlight? Not that I know of directly. I mean, lots of people, lots of people are experimenting. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a, a teacher, a hero teacher who's trying some things. There might be some school districts here that are doing some things. Um, I wanted to tree off of, of what Jurgen said, though. Um, from Qualcomm, they're also funding some interesting um, projects in virtual reality or are looking for some interesting projects to fund in virtual reality, both in education as well as in healthcare and some other fields as well. So as part of their wireless reach initiative that Project Tomorrow is part of, they are very interested in looking at uh, those type of projects to develop the types of case studies and examples that I talked about before that were needed, particularly in K-12 education. If an educator wanted to start tomorrow, where would you tell them to go? Um, a couple different places. There are some interesting organizations in the K-12 space that um, uh, cater to educators that are interested in this. Probably the best well-known organization is an organization called the International Society for Technology and Education. They have a user group around virtual reality. That's sort of the hotbed for educators that are interested in virtual reality. They're sharing a lot of ideas. They're sharing a lot of examples. Uh, it's emerging. It's still small. But uh, that would be the place I would go. It's, it seems like at the beginning of like the Internet where you can still get away with some stuff maybe before they, they start banning things at the school or whatever. Right? Um, uh, did you want to? Well, you know, to the question of what's going on in San Diego, we actually see enough traction where we spun out a company focused on delivering AR and v, primarily AR content for phones, uh, you know, having a single app that will, that you can walk around and see AR content that's delivered and downloaded versus having an app that you need to download for every single little thing that you want to do. And, um, so we're, so there's a lot of, that's what you're going to see in the next year or two. You're going to see a lot of these, all of a sudden your app stores are going to have a million new apps that they display little holographic content, but you know, they'll, they'll probably be primarily disposable apps. You know, you'll, you'll download it, experience it. And then, well, that was fun. And then I want the space on my phone now. Yeah. So, you know, so, but, um, um, I, what I'm, what I fear is, is that that's what, what people's ex expectations are will be around AR is that, uh, you know, it's just content and, yeah. um, you know, it really would be, it's the rhetorical question is, is that how can these 3d based, you know, experiences transform how kids are learning, you know, and, and in ways that we can't even think about right now, but just because we haven't, we haven't been, been thinking like this and maybe they're fundamentally better ways since we're such spatial animals you know, that we really could be laying out information and just communicating a co much more complex co uh, concepts more easily. Um, that would be really interesting. To uh, Can our brains handle much more? <laughs> well, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's uh, when you think of how you can remember, like if, it, if you close your eyes and imagine where your socks are, you know, in, in your house, you could walk yourself right there. You know, you, uh, you, know you, you think about how we store information in 3D spaces and how we can instantly retrieve it. It's... It's much easier to be thinking about problems like that than, oh, it was on page, you know, 46 of, you know, yada, yada, yada. I know where one sock usually is. <laughs> uh, all right. I um, uh, appreciate it. Uh, Rodney Guzman, Jurgen Schultz, Kyle Lee, Julie Evans, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation.